beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I am your host, Joshua Black. I know you're probably expecting some other hosts today, but Sean Ram is unavailable and Jade uh, Carling Black, she had a last minute cancellation. So I'm on my own. So hopefully you guys enjoy this episode. It's me rolling solo for the first time. And so I first want to thank you for tuning in today. And I think that's an important part of us having this podcast is that people are actually listening to it. You know, when we started this podcast, it wasn't something that you really thought about too much. You maybe thought about maybe will one person listen? But we're having such a great following. Thank you for tuning in and sharing this episode with your friends for those episodes that you find impactful to your life. And so in this podcast, if you're new to it, thank you for tuning in and joining us. Um, what we do in this podcast, we like to talk about people's journey. Uh, through life and through loss. And then especially we like to really hone in on if they've ever had any of these grief dreams that maybe you have or have not had yourself. So hopefully this uh, podcast can be a source of comfort for you and inspiration in many ways. So today we have a Australian on uh, again. So I'm actually really, it's probably, you know, if you talk about accents, it's my favorite accent to listen to. So I'm really looking forward to hearing this man speak. <laughs> And so today we have Christopher Hall. And Christopher, uh, for the past 20 years, he has held the position of Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Centre of Grief and Bereavement, which is a government-funded specialist bereavement service, which is based in Melbourne, Victoria. He is a psychologist who has developed a specialization in the field of grief and bereavement over the past 25 years. Chris has trained many health and education professionals in grief theory and interventions both in Australia and internationally. He has a strong interest in child and adolescent grief, complex bereavement experiences, and organizational impact of grief and loss. In 1999, he was elected to the International Work Group on Death, Dying, and Bereavement, IWG, and has served as the chair of the organization. He is currently secretary-treasurer of IWG. He is currently the immediate past president of the Association of Death Education Counseling. A fellow of the Australian Institute of Management, Christopher is also an honorary fellow of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Melbourne. He serves as the editor of the journal Grief Matters, the Australian Journal of Grief and Bereavement, and associate editor of Death Studies. In 2010, Christopher was appointed to the Coronial Council of Victoria. Now that is a bio, folks. I, <laughs> one day I hope to have a bio like this. So Christopher, thank you for coming on the show today. It's my great pleasure. I'm a, a long-time listener, first-time contributor, and I'm uh, really looking forward to us, uh, having a great uh, conversation together, Josh. Well, that's amazing. Thank you for listening to uh, the podcast and I think coming back, on, coming on, and, and realizing that maybe you know there's something here that you can touch on and help some listeners through. I want to just sort of touch on this bio. We could probably have an eight-part series of your life, <laughs> just <laughs> just reading this through. What's one thing that you know you found or you've like throughout your time um, that you found to be almost like the most important part that you're going to look back on and say, hey, you know, I'm glad I was able to do this one thing. It's interesting. I often say to people, kind of working in the field, that that um, you know the image of the of, of the pebble in the pond comes to mind. That um, often we don't know the full impact of our work. Um, even if we're providing support to one person, we don't we don't really fully appreciate how that changes the way they think about grief and loss. And if they're a young person, how that impacts upon their relationships uh, you know, in the future. 
But I think for me what's really important is, and I guess I see part of my work as, as, as a work of social activism, it's really about changing the way our culture thinks and talks or doesn't talk about the experience of grief and loss. I guess my experience, like many, is that m- many of the problems that grieving and bereaved people have are social problems. It's the, it's the inability or the unwillingness of their community to connect and uh, care for them. And, uh, you know, I think as a culture, we often think about grief as some kind of radioactive material. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I guess my, my kind of hope and, and, in fact, much of my work has really been trying to focus on changing our culture, changing the way, you know, Joe and Jane Average in the street, you know, responds to people who've experienced loss. And, uh, you know, in a way that's really kind of supportive. That's beautiful. And have you seen that in, in your time so far? Like you've seen the change and the community becoming more acceptable of grief? Yeah, look, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm frustrated by the, you know, the glacial speed of change. But yeah, I think um, certainly here we've seen those sorts of changes in terms of the way you know, media talks about uh, loss. I think there's a, a, a growing recognition in places like schools that, um, that love and loss are you know, inextricably bound together. We're very happy to talk about love mm-hmm. and uh, the, the, the challenge in, in people actually in having conversations about you know, a loving relationship they may have with someone who's no longer physically present. Some of the work we did, uh, I mean, Australia is prone to horrendous bushfires often with you know, significant levels of fatalities. And a number of years ago, we had uh, a, book, a bushfire that uh, has, has been now referred to as Black Saturday. Uh, we had over 170 people die. And one of the things we, we did in communities um, was to spend time training community leaders, um, people in local government, um, people who were leaders of, of youth groups and hairdressers on how to have conversations and how to be supportive in the presence of a bereaved person. And I found that really important work, that the reality is that most bereaved people don't come into the orbit of mental health practitioners. You know, most people manage with the support and care and love of family and friends. And so we, in fact, um, have some great leverage with people by... Um, doing work with gatekeepers, people like hairdressers. I mean, if you saw me, I've got very little hair, so the conversation was if my hairdressers are pretty short in duration. But we found that for many women, there were hairdressers that had relationships with over many, many years, and they were an important source of support and comfort. Um, and so much of our training there is about how, how can we stay out of the road, of the way of people, so they can actually tell their story and how we can be in a position to hear that story you know, over and over again. Yeah, it's very interesting how, you know, we're not taught about how to, you know, handle grief ourselves in schools or uh, how to comfort our friends or family that have had an issue and, and provide that safe space. And so we rely on these organizations so much so um, that, you know, we've almost taken away from ourselves. But I think that's great what you're doing and uh, trying to get it into the hands of the people who are talking to the bereaved because you know like most people are bereaved in some form either pet loss pregnancy loss or any other type of loss that you're going to you're going to have a loss at some point in your life so it's nice that you have that and, and you're training those people when um so you've been doing this for 25 years what have you seen change in that time in australia when it comes to uh grief and, and mourning and the help that they provide 
Well, one of the one of the really unique things, um, certainly in, in my conversations with people internationally, is recognition by government that grief is a health issue, and and we're um, we're we've been really strongly supported by governments for over two decades now because they realise that that there is such an intimate relationship between grief and health, and that if we can provide um, support to um, bereaved people, but more perhaps as importantly, if we can provide training and support to school teachers and uh, and others in the in the community, that you know we can actually have a have a clear and direct impact on on people's well being, and uh, and also um, basically the cost of health services. And we know that many people that present to a general practitioner or a medical practitioner um, have. Uh, recent experiences of significant loss, that there are strong relationships between grief and um, alcohol and and other substance misuse. Um, so I think what we've seen is a is a recognition that, in a sense, grief and bereavement isn't the domain of grief and bereavement, you know, therapists or practitioners, but really it's the business of of, of everyone. And uh, I think that's been an important shift we've seen over, over time. I think the other important shift we've seen is just in terms of how we think about grief, that we've moved away from these kind of cookie-cutter approaches, you know, that people go through a predictable sequence of emotional responses to a place now where we recognise that grief is, is highly idiosyncratic, highly idiosyncratic, it's highly individual. And if we take the view that the bereaved person's relationship with the person who has died is unique and idiosyncratic. The way we provide support similarly needs to be individual. So I think another shift we've seen is a movement away from the idea that grief counselling or grief therapy is the only way that we can respond effectively to, to bereaved people. And, and I guess we reflect that in a number of ways. So some of the groups we run might be on meditation, they might be walking groups where there's no expectation that people engage even in conversation about their loss. We know that for many bereaved people, what are the challenges are the problems of daily living? So it may be that we provide support to a bereaved person through financial support, um, developing new skills around parenting, negotiating things like how do you return to work. One of the things we've done in conjunction with another organisation is to identify compassionate employers. So this is rather than a deficit model where we're in a sense, critical of organisations who aren't responsive to the needs of bereaved people. The idea of giving awards to organisations that are nominated by bereaved people who have done something that's really been exemplary in providing support to a bereaved person. So, again, looking at the organisation as another context within which people grieve. And that might be that they've been incredibly flexible in terms of work arrangements. It may be that you know that, that an employer has gone and provided... Um, a family with meals for a month or or some other um, in a way of providing support. So I think in many ways what we've seen is a movement out of the, if you like, the clinical setting to seeing how we can respond to people in, in the places that they live. And I think that's been an important um, uh, shift, as well as, that, as I mentioned earlier, the, the shift away from the idea that everybody needs the same thing at the same time. Mm-hmm.
That's interesting. And it's interesting you could see that. I'm just starting in the field. So, you know, my vision is sort of just what I see in the last couple of years. But it's nice over the 25 years, you have seen some change. And it's encouraging to know, like, maybe another 25 years, what what will happen and how our culture views grief. Um, and hopefully it's it's continue goes in the same direction. And so I know you talked a little bit so far about some of the programs you have, which I think is amazing because I haven't heard other organizations around holding those type of award kind of ceremonies for people or having programs for um, different bereaved individuals in support of finances and stuff like that. So what else does the American Center of Grief and Bereavement actually do in the sense of the community? Yeah, so we operate in three areas. We kind of visualize it as a kind of interconnected triangle. Um, one part of that triangle is really about you know education. And so that ranges from community education. So we, we run... Um, to two-hour programs on you know, how to support a bereaved person, um, managing or coping with sudden unexpected death, um, the grief of separation and divorce. So our focus is primarily around death-related loss, but we also focus on a range of other non-death losses as well. So community education um, is, is important. And then we, we go um, across the spectrum up to postgraduate training, we run graduate certificates in briefing counselling methods and practice. And these are for usually highly experienced counsellors who come in and over 12 months do a very intensive program of, um, of, of training around um, supporting those individuals with really complex needs. And again, the, the, the literature suggests probably about 8%, 8 or 9% of the bereaved population develop complications that really merit specialist intervention. Um, and this appears to be where interventions are most effective for brief, uh, brief people, those high-risk individuals. So there's a broad range of um, training options as one part of that triangle. The other is around um, our clinical programs. We provide internships where um, graduates of our program and other programs come and, um, in, and work in our clinical setting, and they would receive uh, clinical supervision, usually in that sort of a one hour of, of uh, clinical supervision for about three hours of clinical work and so people will often do 80 to 120 hours of clinical work with us um, and we continue to provide them with uh, supervision and also additional training. Um, we also have uh, uh, clinical staff who provide support to brief individuals. So we see just over a thousand clients a year. Um, many of those clients are, are people who've come to us through the coronial service so these are often sudden unexpected traumatic deaths. Um, increasingly, we're providing um, our clinical services using telehealth so people can, you know, using an iPhone or an iPad or, or a computer, um, can connect with one of our clinicians and, um, and all those sessions are, uh, are held uh, uh, using a particular telehealth platform. So that's the kind of the second part, which is the clinical. And the third is more kind of research and consultancy. So we've been, uh, as you mentioned, we, we publish a journal done for about 20 years, and we make that um, a member benefit. But actually, if you remember the uh, of ADEC, the Association of Death Education and Counselling, we also make that journal available free of charge to all members of ADEC. Um, and that's very much practice-focused. So, um, in fact, our most recent edition is focused on telehealth and bereavement care. But it, um, you know, it might look at a whole range. They're usually thematically based, and often those papers are through uh, by invitation. And we also are involved in developing standards. So we, um, with another organisation, developed 
bereavement standards for people in palliative care services in Victoria. So it basically sets out what we believe is really the the minimum standards for providing good bereavement care to people who um, have had somebody die in a palliative care service. And the other is kind of consultancy. So we'll often be rung by an organisation where there may have been a death or some other event or we might be asked to help with um, developing policies. So that's the third element. And the goal is that our clinical program informs our research as it informs what we teach in our program and, and vice versa. So that's kind of the model um, we use and a, a kind of very strong commitment to kind of you know, evidence-informed practice um, and also um, practice-informed evidence as well. So what are we learning from our work with clients and, uh, and what that, how that might influence our agenda in terms of um, research and education? Wow, you're... Uh... Your organization does so much more than I thought, and I really like the the idea of having that telehealth about people can call about their grief on a hotline. Yeah. And I think that that's really important because not when grief you have those grief upsurges and you need someone to talk to. Sometimes it can be a while before you can see someone, so or go to a group. And I think having someone just to chat with that's trained in grief would be a, a huge uh, impact in their in their health and well being. Yeah, I think lots of people hold certain views about telehealth. Um, one research finding is that it's just effective as you know face-to-face contact. It's not uh, it's not a substitute or an inferior form of providing clinical service. And I think the other thing too is it, it um, when we look at all the research around health seeking, that I think it provides access to people who wouldn't come to a a brick and mortar in a briefing counselling service particularly people in rural areas where privacy is a real issue. And so, yeah, I think it will be you know, interesting. Um, and I think in many ways, it's, it's very much the early days. But I think what we'll, we'll see is we'll, the different sorts of people will actually, just as a, a matter of preference, will seek out telehealth, partly because of its convenience. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, um, it's more convenient. Easier for people to obviously get to appointments. There's been some work in the UK that suggests that when we look at carbon footprints of you know of people coming to appointments and, and councillors going out visiting people, that there's even a, it's even a greener option. Um, but mm-hmm. certainly for uh, for many people, not just those in remote areas, but even who, who are you know quite close to uh, a service, that it does provide a um, a really viable option for them. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't. I would imagine as we move forward with technology, there'll probably be some kind of texting thing sooner or later that comes about. Because some people don't even like to talk, but they'll text more than um, actually pick up the phone as a way to, you know, find support. So yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how you know we support the the bereaved uh, as we move forward with technology. Um, yeah, and I think some of the there's been some really interesting work around uh, you know augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, I recently saw uh, somebody who developed a, um, a, a virtual reality um, funeral, and so you could actually be at the wake and hear different conversations going on. So, I oh. think uh, I think te- technology will open up some really exciting options. Um, and I think it's interesting that the over 65 cohort uh, are the largest growth group for Facebook. So it's not just a question of this is something that the you know the digital natives are using. Uh, increasingly, older people uh, are um, becoming very comfortable in using 
on sort of IT and uh, platforms. Oh, that's amazing. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. I got to tell my grandma. <laughs> Everyone's doing <laughs> it. <laughs> it's funny. And so I want to actually talk too about uh, you have a conference uh, that's coming up. So can you talk about the Australian Grief and Bereavement Conference if someone wants to join and, and learn a little bit? Sure. So, yeah, so our next conference, uh, we hold a, a national conference every two years. So our next is in, in Sydney in August of this year. And uh, um, that's a, we usually have two days of sort of master classes or pre-conference workshops and a, a three-day program. Um, this year, our, our, our keynotes are, are drawing on a couple of themes. It's, uh, it's 100 years since the end of the, um, the First World War. And the First World War has often been seen by historians as a, as a, a point of change in, in the culture of public grieving, that given the large number of deaths, that uh, in many ways at that point in time, grief became much more of a privatised affair and, and came with it the sort of this very stoic idea um, of uh, seeing grief as being stoic and emotions as largely kind of hidden in masks. So we look at some of, um, from a historical perspective, how grief and loss has changed over the last 100 years. And the other uh, discussions are really about um, uh, the, the questions around the pathologizing of grief, uh, as some describe it, but with a move to more sophisticated treatments and interventions, how do we both meet the needs of people who have complex needs, but also uh, not get to a position where our culture kind of pathologizes grief. And, and this has partly been uh, a result of the conversations around the DSM and the, the ICD, which are really two classification of diseases um, that have both grappled in, in different ways with addressing the question of, of complications in grief. So that, they're the kind of the two threads of, uh, of, of the conference, uh, looking at looking back, but also looking forward, and uh, and how we, as a, a society or as a culture, will manage much of the new science around the effectiveness of, uh, of treatments and, and complicated grief. Amazing. So I'm guessing all that information on the speakers and the workshops will be online. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess the other kind of interesting uh, thing is in 2020, we'll be hosting for the second time the International Conference on Grief and Bereavement in Contemporary Society. So that's the largest international conference, so that'll be based in Melbourne in 2020. Most recently, that was held last year in Portugal. And uh, that's, so if people have got some long-term you know, planning flexibility, uh, 2020 and the International Conference of Grief and Bereavement in Contemporary Society in Melbourne would be, um, um, and that'll be a fantastic conference. We had last time only uh, 900 people at that conference from all over the world. Wow. So uh, that's something perhaps to pencil into the uh, digital diary. Yeah, yeah. My uh, Usually my calendar only goes uh, a couple months, but hey, I'll write that down because I think, yeah, you're right. It's, uh, and I always wanted to go to Australia too, so that'd be something that'd be very interesting to go and, and see what's going on internationally in, in you know grief and bereavement. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. You got all the tips, eh? <laughs> you know all the inside. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, actually uh, go back to your story. So we talked a lot about you know uh, your organization, but I'm actually curious on what got you into grief and bereavement 25 years ago. 
because I'm guessing it wasn't something that people were saying, go do this, right? Um, it was probably something um, that has a story behind it. So can you talk a little about like why you specialized in grief and bereavement sure. back, back in your younger days? <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I've got to go back to you know very much the younger days. Um, I'm one of six children. Um, my father was a uh, an Anglican minister. I guess what in, in the States would be called an Episcopalian minister of religion. And so we uh, we would often move around every eight years to various kind of parishes where we lived. Um, and so I remember even as a young child, you know, looking at often the, where we lived was next door to a church. And I even remember as a young child, you know, often looking out the window and there'd be a hearse coming up and there'd be a casket being taken into a church and and uh, and my father would be taking taking funerals. I remember once he, he actually said that if he hadn't become a priest, he probably would have become a funeral director because I think in many ways he was very comfortable um, with with um, taking funerals and I think perhaps for him it, it was um, a particular context where he felt that you know, he was skilled and and uh, so that was certainly one um, one seed I think that was planted that that from a very young age and I even remember um, as a young child going to a funeral of a of a teacher who died. The other thing is that from time to time people would ring um, the phone and and more than once there'd be a distressed you know, widow or a widower on the end of the phone you know, wanting to speak to my father. And so um, I, I was in a sense um, confronted with, with with that kind of context very early on in uh, in life. I think as a, as a child I was naturally curious. I was you know, always taking things apart and I was much better at taking them apart and putting them back together again. Um, and uh, and so there's a there's a certain level of curiosity. And I think um, I was I was somebody who was who, who was a questioner. I mean, I think much of my conflict with par- my parents was focused around m- me responding with why, you know, why is that the case? You know, why should I? Uh, and so forth. So there was there was a, a level of curiosity. We we moved to state when I was about uh, ten or eleven, uh, just before my pri- my final year of, of I guess what you call elementary school. Um, I was had a very I felt like a very idyllic childhood, and then moved into state, went to a school where really I knew nobody. Um, they played a different code of football. So the first time I played football, um, I kind of made a fool of myself because uh, it wasn't Australian rules. It was, I was used to playing rugby, um, and uh, so I was there for probably about two or three months and got to know a couple of us kids. Um, but I remember going to school one, one Monday morning and the teacher announcing that a student wouldn't be coming back. And I subsequently found out this student had uh, been electrocuted and had died over the weekend. But there was really very little said. He was there and then just not there. And I, I recall even back then the thought, what is it about this that's so scary that... that that people can't talk about, and I wanted to find out what happened, and uh, and so his absence was really palpable to me. And the interesting thing is, even today, his name is one of the few names I can recall from that year. Actually, Rayson was his name, um, so he would have been eleven at the at the time of his death. And I think that, in many ways, planted the seed about, wow, this can happen very quickly. This death thing, this is something that grown ups either won't talk about or don't know how to talk about. Um, and and that really kind of stuck with me in, uh, well, really it stuck to me to this day. Um, 
I then, through my schooling, became kind of very interested in theatre and, and, and film and television. I think much of that was an interest in the technical aspects of it, but it was also an interest in stories. And uh, so I actually ended up going to university through a department of, of film and television and, uh, and ended up majoring. And, and there I discovered psychology and sort of fell in love with psychology. So I ended up um, majoring in, in psychology and drama. And um, that's, that's so weird. That's <laughs> such a weird it, mix. <laughs> it is. In fact, everybody at the time says that what a strange mix. You never get a job. Um, <laughs> so, uh, way to prove you know, them I, wrong, eh? Way to prove them all wrong. <laughs> so I became very interested at that point in time in, in psychodrama. Um, and I was doing some voluntary work with, um, with some institutions with adults with intellectual disabilities. And, uh, and I really was enjoying that work. Um, but eventually, uh, well, three months after I graduated, I got a phone call um, and was offered a job as a school counsellor and to also teach year 12 psychology. Um, psychology had just started as a, as a teaching area. And, um, and so that was really, you know, a fantastic, fantastic job, which gave me the opportunity to get my clinical supervision as a, as a psychologist. I then did postgraduate training in child and adolescent psychology and, um, and really loved that, that um uh, that opportunity to work in you know, a school it was an alternative school, so educators familiar with Summerhill it was along those those lines. And then I subsequently uh, got a promotion as a as a psychologist responsible for a group of schools, and uh, uh, as a senior psychologist. And just over that period of time, um, more and more my interest developed into areas of grief and loss. So I work with schools that were being closed down following a government restructure of education. So speaking to parents who this child was going to that school and they and they had gone to that school as a child and and, and thinking about loss in, in a broader framework in terms of, of you know the loss of um, history and the loss of connection and and the importance of place for people in terms of their experience. Um, I then uh, was involved in working with a young uh, 18-year-old boy who was involved in the murder-suicide of his entire family. There was a house fire. A, a, a parent um, had spread, spread accelerant through a house and had, had uh, effectively killed themselves and a, a, a six-year-old a daughter and a, uh, a nine-year-old son. And so I worked with this uh, young guy really from that point um, through, through the coronial process and uh, supporting him through that and working with schools that were impacted, spending time talking to five and six year olds about you know the death of their their classmates and the way they could respond to it, and I just felt that that was really useful work. I think partly what I liked about it was being able to come in with a kind of a framework of understanding that experience, not being overwhelmed by it perhaps, but but feeling like that, that I was sort of some use. And for, for me, that was a really pivotal point in time. Um, I learned a lot there. I learned about the importance of self-care. I remember at the end of many months of work, sitting with my wife, talking about a card that I'd actually been given by a parent. And it was just a really lovely note. And as I was talking to my wife about that, I just had this kind of outpouring of tears. I, I said later that I, it felt like I'd been hit in the back of the head. And it was just a kind of a a, a, a tearfulness just came from the bottom of my gut, and 
what I learned there was that even though putting all these mechanisms to support my staff and the team that were working there, I'd really not entered into that um, process as much as I should have. And and so that was really important for me that, that yeah, this work does have an impact and we need to we need to make space for for our our own self care. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those things I think people forget. Like they want to help people, but then there's so much tragedy and so much suffering that you have to be able to sit with to be effectively good at what you're doing. And if you if you don't know how to sort of take care of yourself, um, you won't be able to provide that space that they need to be able to share uh, in, in for their grief and their journey. So you know, I'm glad you're able to recognize that. Um, and be able to, I'm guessing you're teaching that now too, as one of the, the main things in your, your programs. Uh, absolutely. And, and at the time I had a, I had a young daughter and, uh, and uh, so obviously that resonates with me. I think one of the things about this work is it changes your view of, of the world. You know, when you've sat with, you know, bereaved parents whose, whose daughter or child has suddenly and unexpectedly died, that changes, I think, the way you think about your relationships. And, you know, I remember saying to my daughter that, you know, maybe I would have been perhaps a, 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 an anxious parent if I'd been a bricklayer. But but I think certainly uh, you're aware of possibilities. And so, you know, you don't take things for granted. So certainly the work does change your, your pri- you know, if, if you can make that distinction, it does change your kind of your private world. It does change your your views about you know, the nature of the world. We, my wife works in palliative care, uh, working with people um, who have Lou Gehrig's disease, um, ALS, um, MND as we call it here. And so, you know, we talk about not putting things away for special occasions. We live in a sense of perhaps a more immediate kind of life <laughs> because we know that, um, you know, in the blink of an eye, life can change. And so, you know, let's live fully and open in this, in this moment. But anyway, as I uh, was saying about working with this, this kid, um, shortly after that work, um, this advertisement came out for the director of the Centre for Grief Education, as it was known back then, and it was really my wife's encouragement, urging that, that I applied. And, uh, and so I did, and, and so I kind of found myself in this place which spoke to both my kind of love of education and teaching and and kind of making a difference in that sense, but also my interest in, you know, in grief and, and bereavement. And, uh, and so I've been there now 22 years. And, uh, I've, uh, you know, I love as much today as I did 22 years ago. So it's, it's, a, it's an extraordinary privilege, really. Um, and I work with a fantastic group of over 20, you know, fellow, you know, clinicians and staff. It's, uh, uh, it's great. I think the other thing that, that, that happened probably when I was um, in my early 20s was being at my parents' home and we're saying good, goodbye to a um, sort of distant relative and this man was in his 70s, I guess, and he kind of had collapsed and uh, I remember performing CPR on him and him dying there with his wife beside him. And, uh, and again, I think that very immediate confrontation with death and its stubbornness and unexpectedness was something that um, you know also left an imprint uh, on me. Um, so I think in many ways, even though I'm you know, one of six kids and probably had the most conflictual relationship with my father, who died now 11 years ago, 
Um, I think in, in a secular sense, I'm probably most like my father of all my siblings. But, uh, so it's kind of interesting in terms of that kind of belting part of kind of family kind of life that uh, even as someone who I, who I was in many ways very conflicted with, um, in many ways my, my life has become very much like his. Mm. Which is kind of a, a strange thing in 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 reflection, and uh, I think certainly three years of a psychoanalysis, uh, whilst we're still alive, was helpful. Um, um, and uh, it, it certainly um, continues to influence my um, my life. But um, yeah, so I, I, I see very much that, that the grief and bereavement world found me, rather mm. than than me having any particular. You know, plan trajectory. I guess in retrospect, we can look back and and connect the dots. But at the time, um, I certainly wouldn't have thought of myself as spending most of my professional life working in the field of you know, of grief and bereavement. Well, especially in the beginning, because you're saying like how you lost that classmate of yours, and you know, and you you mm. saw the impact on the students around you and yourself as a child. So I can see like sort of that parallel in you starting with children, adolescents as your sort of base, and then you went to, you know, run the center afterwards. And so do you ever miss like the one-on-ones with people now? I, mean, I don't think you, you do, you do more of the training than the actual, uh, I guess, frontline work. Do you ever miss that? Yeah, look, I, in fact, I do. It's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because I've just, I've just had my, you know, performance appraisal as you do in any <laughs> yeah. job. Yeah, they're 22 and years. The, I think you're good. <laughs> I think you're yeah, doing yeah. Well, you know, I, I think I'm okay. But <laughs> but one of the things I said is that that I felt over the last decade, um, my my kind of clinical activity has kind of diminished so much, and and so the plan is that later this year to actually go back and and uh, and work with clients. That I'm even in terms of my training, I'm starting to bore myself with my my you know um, clinical anecdotes, um, and so it's. It, yeah, I think it's really important to have that that balance. But yeah, I do. And, and I said, as I said uh, to someone recently, I didn't grow up, you know, with a fervent desire to be a CEO, you know, uh, and and to be working on you know budgets and uh, and strategic plans and so forth. That 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 kind of again found me. So um, I do I do miss that. I mean, I I really value the conversations I have with staff about their their clinical work. Um, I still read and very involved in, in in the field but yeah there are times where you know there are there have been times where you know you're you know, struggling for, for for money in terms of running programs or you know, you're going through restructures or you've got to change focus because of some issue with their rises um so yeah i i'm really looking forward to letting some of some of those responsibilities go and, and moving back into um working with clients again Oh, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I'd love to hear how that goes, and if there, like, if there's that kind of nervous excitement, you know, like when you start something new again, you've been away from to see if you still have it, you know, if you still have what it takes. <laughs> uh, well, no doubt, I, 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 I'm absolutely sure that there'll be that kind of that kind of energy, that nervous energy around. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, I think you know, I, I realize that yeah, it's the client that does all the hard work. Um, and you know, it's it's not so much up up to me. Um, what I need to do is to provide that um, that relationship, that support, um, up to enable the client to 
um, to do what they need to do. So um, with that with that kind of recognition, it kind of takes the pressure off a little. Um, and I think too, the other thing is that when you've been in the field and and you've got some frames of of understanding people's experience, that you're less likely to be kind of um, I guess consumed by that. So as I say to, to, to people when I'm doing training that I love that old Yiddish expression that God gave us two ears and one mouth and we should use them in our, in those proportions. Mm. You know, it's much more about our capacity to listen. We, we can't give bereaved people what they want in a sense. We can't give them that that, that living relationship. Um, but what we can do is provide them with kind of a, 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 relationship, a relationship that allows them to, um, to explore what they need to explore. Yeah, and that, that's the beauty, and it is a skill because you have to be good with your own suffering and other suffering, and you have to sort of work through some of your stuff to be able to provide that. You could, people say like safe space or just that supportive space for people to really question and talk about their loss because most people around them, they're not good at that. You know, like we're not trained to be able to offer space for people, and so I think it's amazing what you guys are doing and what you're training to allow people. I said a thousand people. I said last year were able to share. Uh, part of their grief in their life and and to find healing in their own way but to to feel heard in their struggles that they go through because it's uh you know like going starting this journey i didn't really know much about loss but it's uh, as i hear stories you just like the suffering people go through and one of the major reasons is because there's this lack of support in their lives like people love them and they care for them but they just don't know how to support them in in an effective way uh, and so I'm glad you have that and there's places people can go to and really just search the internet um, if you, you're not in Australia and you need to talk to someone, you know, or reach out to someone and ask for help because I think that's an important part in our grief journey is just be able to be vulnerable enough to to say something about how we're feeling. Yeah, yeah I think you're absolutely right. And we, we have people come to us and they, they say they either don't have anybody they can talk to or their friends and family are saying, you know, I've, I've heard this story too much. You know, you need to go and find someone else. So, and I, I think people don't realise that with each retelling of that story, people start to find a place, you know, within their within their world for understanding it. Um, and I can use the analogy of, you know, a significant loss is like a huge meal. You know, we can't consume it at one sitting. We need to come back um, over time. And, you know, I think many people see grief as like the flu, you know, this short-term, you know, um, event that we kind of rapidly process and uh, we return to normal quickly. And so I think there's such a fundamental misunderstanding about the nature of grief and about the power of grief. And that in a fundamental way, there is no recovery from grief. There is no getting over it's about you know relearning the world. The world's a different place, and how do we live in that place? And so I think the, some of the analogies we've used in the past about grief being like a, an injury that where you know it heals and disappears is is just not borne out by most people's experience. Um, and even the way we think about the dead um, is uh, fundamentally problematic. You know, the death ends a life; it doesn't end relationship and. And the people that we love still populate, populate our heads and our hearts. And effectively what grief is, is, is love with nowhere to go. So much of our work is about helping people find a way of directing that love in a way that is helpful for, for them and that fosters that kind of connection.
Yeah, it's beautifully said. I want to actually ask about, you said your father just passed away 11 years ago. When, yeah. because you're in the area of grief, um, does your, did your other five siblings like look for you for support in, in that sort of time? Uh, Josh, that's a, that's, a really, that's a really great question. I think being seen as kind of the quote-unquote grief expert certainly did have a, an impact. I think uh, it, in, in a sense, it made things easier and more difficult. I think there was, to some extent, things were directed to me to do or to manage, and so... You know, with my brother, I did the did his uh, eulogy, and, and I think there were some family members that that, went, that that sought me out in terms of how to talk to children and so forth. So I think it changes the role that I had within the family for a period of time. Um, I think for me, it certainly helped in that it gave me a framework for understanding my father's death. I mean, my father died at about eighty-two. Um, he died in an aged care facility. He was he was free of pain. He had dementia for a number of years beforehand. All the family were present at the time of death. It was you know a, a powerful, moving um, experience. So it wasn't a death that kind of really challenged me in terms of making sense of the death. It wasn't. Yes, it was painful, but it wasn't kind of an an effortful grief in a sense. It it, it was one where I thought, well, yes. I felt that my relationship with my father was kind of in a good place, um, that I had an opportunity to be there at the time of his death and to support my mother and my, and my siblings. So I think what it provided me with was an, an opportunity to understand more about the way I grieved. Um, but certainly I think did change the, the role I had within the family. Um, because of the fact that I knew something about this stuff. That's int- it's so interesting. And I think people, like they do, they, if you know anything about, you know, grief, they'll go towards you first um, for advice or support. And it's nice you could be there for them. And it seems as, as you're talking, you actually made, it didn't hinder you uh, in, in that way, in the sense of you tried to put on a, a role, is that you grieved yourself in, in your own different way. Yeah, I'm sometimes asked the question, you know, was it easier because you knew this stuff about grief and bereavement? I wouldn't say that it was, you know, easier in in any sense. I, um, one of the things I did was I actually video recorded his memorial service. Um, My brother was overseas, my oldest brother was overseas on his honeymoon. And um, uh, so what I then did was edit that together. Um, So again, the film and TV interest, I guess. What I found was I kind of dosed myself with that task. I'd, I'd work on editing it for five minutes or so, and I'd, you know, I'd hear the words again and again, and then I'd, I'd take me to break and I'd come back. And so for me, my grief was very, um, in many ways, um, linked to creating that you know, um, DVD memorial recording, if you like, and... Uh, what people in the field would call a very instrumental way of grieving, but but in many ways, spending time in my office editing that was was part of my grief work um, about telling that story, and so I think that that's certainly something that I found um, very helpful for me. Wow, it's so interesting. Like I've heard, you know, like when my father passed away, I took pictures of the memorial and the service, 
but the video that's that's really interesting um hopefully no one gave you dirty looks because i know i got a, a couple <laughs> when i was taking pictures <laughs> well no actually i just had the video camera locked off and uh oh, no no and, one knew they were being recorded okay <laughs> so yeah yeah so and uh yeah so that that was that was kind of it was pretty discreet in that in that way um mm. just going back to my father's death it's interesting um again like those really seismic episodes in your life i was again talking to my wife Robin recently about that and and she i said the thing that i can recall most acutely and again it's very i guess it's very cinematic um was was crying and feeling a tear roll down my cheek and hit my leather shoe and I have a very strong sort of um, memory of that, just standing there, not far from his bed, uh, crying as, as, as everyone else around the room were doing, and feeling that tear roll down and just bounce off my shoe. It's a very kind of powerful kind of image I'm left with today. That is, you see that in movies a lot too, right? That, that yeah, it was, weird. it was kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, if you'd, if you'd seen a kind of a, a slow motion recording of that, you would have thought, yeah, that would have been the movie. But but yeah, I, I um, yeah, I felt very um, well. I'm, it's kind of very raw, you know, experience being there as, as somebody, you know, takes their last breath. And I, I think the other thing I recalled very strongly was looking at his chest after he died, and and not quite. Well, of course, I'd never seen his chest not move with him breathing and and just looking at that to see see it's just not moving. and so we talk about kind of accepting the reality of the death like it's um you know that you know, it, it, it takes takes some time um so that's another kind of strong memory i guess I wow. as well. hmm. yeah every every you know death is a little different you take and you have different moments that stand out to you more than others mm. And I'm guessing your siblings have different moments that are different from yours. And it's just, it's interesting what we pick up and what we sort of focus on. Um, be, as Absolutely. you said, we're very unique and all those moments are very meaningful to you. And that's why it's always great to ask, you know, as much as you have a moment, everyone else has different moments and it's always great mm -hmm. to ask around and what their moments are. Well, it's interesting. I was, I was in the car with my brother and we were talking some months after my father's death and he was describing what he saw as my relationship with my father, which was so different from the way I had, had seen that relationship. And, and similarly in terms of, of how I saw his relationship. So again, you know, six people in the room having very six very different experiences. Um, and uh, of course, you know, we only, we, only have, we only have our own narrative, but it's so powerful to hear uh, of other people's kind of perceptions and, and, and beliefs, you know. Clearly, yeah. there's no one reality. You know, we all create our own, and uh, yeah, it's true. And so, going on to grief dreams now, have you ever had a dream of your father or, or someone else after they've passed? I have. I have. It's really interesting. I, I was thinking after we'd agreed to kind of catch up. I thought, my gosh, you know, I really only have one kind of dream about my father, uh, and uh, and again, having listened to other people on my podcast. At some level, I've got a level of kind of envy about the whole richly textured and nuanced dreams they've had. Um, but it's interesting, I actually had a second uh, dream only a, a week or so ago. Um, so the first dream I had was probably about three years after his his death. And in fact, it wasn't, um, it, 
wasn't a kind of a dream that had any particular kind of narrative or story. I'd just woken up and had a very strong feeling that I'd been in the presence of my father. There was a there was just something, um, and in effect, in effect, there was nothing that I could recall other than the fact that my father had been there. And so it was much more about a quality. There was no particular story. There was just the sense that I'd been asleep and I'd been in the presence of my father, and that was a really nice thing. Um, and uh, I, I recall I woke up and I was crying. I was sobbing. Um, and it was just this very strong sense that um, there'd been a connection and the the essence, I, I'd been, in a sense, in the presence of the essence of my father. And there was no conversation, there was no words, it was just this really strong sense of connection. And um, and that was really, that was really um, powerful. It was, it was strange in that my other dreams, had, well, my normal dreams, if you like, had always come with some kind of story or some kind of context. So that was really um, very strange um, and very different. The other, the other dream, which was a much more recent one, was a, a dream, in fact, of my my uncle, my father's brother. And um, my father died of, Alzheimer's, of Alzheimer's, and my uncle died a number of years um, later with Alzheimer's as well. And I remember being in this um, this buildings, some meeting hall, and uh, there were stalls set up, there were tables set up around, and I remember going up to this table and seeing my my uncle standing behind, and, uh, you know, he was smiling, and uh, he he said, uh, oh, yes, I've seen your dad, yeah, I've seen your dad, uh, he's, he's fine, he's fine, um, and, and, that, and that was it. So it's just a really now whether or not the idea of coming on the podcast was was a, a trigger to that, but I certainly went to sleep intentionally saying, "Yeah, I'd really like a dream um, about my father. That would be that would be nice." And so, in a sense, it wasn't a dream about my father; it was a, it was a dream about my father. But it was, in yeah. fact, my uncle just providing this reassurance that, "Yeah, he's he's fine." So I think, wow. uh, yeah, that was that was kind of a very different kind of experience. But I sometimes think that in fact perhaps the absence of my father in my dream life is is counterbalanced by the presence of my father in my you know, lived life. And that uh he's something I think about often. And even in my teaching, um, I'll often reflect upon my father as I guess as a kind of personal example and this idea of you know, a continuing connection that the death isn't about saying goodbye and that there are many aspects of my father that I continue not just in my work but I guess also in my my personality and and my interests. So yeah, so they've they've kind of been the two two dreams um that I've had. Um, it's it's so interesting to hear those and how you reflect on the especially the first one is that there's no story, like it was different from other dreams and I think that's what you're referring to with a lot of these profound dreams you're hearing about too. And even the dream you shared is not really like there's, it's very simple and it's very straightforward. And there seems to be some type of message or something going on or the mm. feeling 
um, which is totally different from, you know, being in a spaceship outside, being chased by aliens. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's nothing. That's right. Or turning up on. to school naked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like those ones. Uh, so, so it's nice. It's like, it almost feels like it's real life in a way. You're just with them while you're at a, you know, you see them. And it's so fascinating. You had that. And so how did you, when you, so the first time you woke up and you had that and you cried and reflected when you had the second dream with your uncle sharing that your father's okay, how did that make you feel when you woke up? It didn't come with kind of, you know, a strong emotional kind of um, connection. Um, yeah. So I certainly didn't wake up distressed. I felt, um, I felt pleased. I felt, um, in fact, with both of them, there was, a, there was a real level of peacefulness about them. Um, it was, I found it affirming and I, I found it, I found it surprising in that I certainly didn't expect kind of, if you like, a message, air quotes, um, from, from my dead uncle about my, you know, my, my dead father. So, yeah, I mean, you know, some very people talk about real fear about going to sleep and the fear about their dreams, but certainly fear wasn't, or distress wasn't a feature of those um, those dreams that I had. I felt, yeah, that's nice. That's that's nice. Um, and I like I like hearing those dreams where people get a sense of peace when they wake up. You know, it's. Mm. Because usually, like just in you know dream research, most of our dreams are negative in nature on average, and after loss, yeah. they're supposed to be more negative too. But for whatever reason, when the bereaved is mentioned or is part of it, the like the imagery, it tends to be peaceful, and which is very surprising to me and my supervisor. We're just like it doesn't make sense according to what what other research has been on you know dreams and trauma or dreams mm -hmm. and bereavement. So it's it's very interesting on what's going on. But yeah, like to be able, man, that's, that's cool that, you know, thinking about, you know, coming on the podcast triggered it. I'm guessing people are going to think that coming on the show has some kind of like magical uh, flair to get one of these dreams, <laughs> be bombarded by emails. <laughs> people want to come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Maybe you could offer a FIFA service, you know, I, yeah. we'll find you a slot and you'll, you'll, you'll have a dream that come with it. Um, uh, yeah, no, I, I think it's, um, it's, it's really interesting. And I think, you know, many people, you know, the thing about bereavement is it often takes people to painful places. But even if that pain contains a connection to the person, you know, people will go to the cemetery and that will be distressing, but they'll also find a, a sense of connection with the person. So, you know, that, that kind of continuing connection comes in, which brings some degree of comfort, comes in the midst of the pain. Um, and it's not a, certainly not an antidote to the pain, but just kind of going back to the idea of this, you know, ongoing connection. I, I remember my father telling me the story that as he was growing up, he, his parents were Methodist ministers. So I come from a long line of, of uh, missionaries and, and priests. Um, but he was forbidden from from um, whistling in the home. It was just something that he was not allowed to do. So he, in in um, what he developed was this kind of what I can only describe as a sub-audible whistle. It's kind of a it it kind of uh, you know make this noise without you know whistling you know I remember not long after his death going to work one day and finding myself doing this <laughs> um, whistle which is very much my father's uh, whistle. Um, growing up, my father kept bees and we had this little shed called the bee room and there was all lots of interesting stuff that I'd often go in there and you know fiddle with and get into trouble for. But 
you know, I now live in a property and we've got beehives. And uh, so even even keeping bees and, and making honey is a kind of very much a connection to my uh, to my father. So, you know, this idea that we are we're kind of a pastiche of personalities. We we kind of co-opt or, or other parts of people find their ways you know ways into our lives and and uh, and that's expressed. And so um, that's why I think in, in many ways my father is still very you know very much a part of uh, very part of me, much part of me in my life. I think. No, it's beautiful, especially how you articulate that and the different ways. And sometimes they're conscious and you make an effort and other times it just happens. But you know, yeah. they're definitely a part of you. Still, yeah. nothing can take that away. Exactly. Whether you like it or not. And, yeah. you know, our relationships with living people can be complicated and our relationships with dead people can be complicated too. And, mm-hmm. you know, there are certain you know, parts of relationships you might, you know, let go of or perhaps not focus on so much. So, um you know, and I think certain, certainly for me, therapy um, left me with a arriving a place where you know people do the best they can, um, you know, given their own experiences and and so forth. So I guess you know, taking a more compassionate view of of other people's limitations um, or inabilities. And you know, my father was not someone who you go outside and throw a football around with, but certainly my love of books and love of learning have have come from him. So. You know, it swings and swings and roundabouts. Yeah, no, it's definitely uh, yeah, it's very interesting about just you know grief and that's I think people are so shocked when it first happens, like the first meaningful loss, because there's all this mm. stuff that they never heard about before and they're experiencing and they think they may be going crazy because they're whistling, yeah. you know, like <laughs> yeah, you know, and but it's it's all normal, right? Like this stuff is you know to really you know understand like there's so many different ways we mourn and how we make meaning from our loss. So I think it's great that you shared those examples for the audience to listen to. And uh, I want to ask, too, one question about grief dreams for you. Uh, I've talked about on the show a bunch of times how there's very little research. Why do you think that is? Do you have any kind of understanding? Because like I went into the field and I was shocked, and I still am very shocked, and yeah. um, that there's just nothing really there that, that should be there. You know, and grief's yeah. been looked at for so much, but do you know understand why maybe that it hasn't been looked at? Yeah. Well, worse, I think that's a fantastic opportunity for a doctoral student. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I think I, I think it does reflect a kind of a broader um, uh, challenge around both bereavement and also about dreams. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think I think sometimes dreams brings with it sort of um, a deal of as baggage. And I think, you know, many people think about dreams and, you know, the Freudian idea of dream interpretation. And and then you've got things like, you know, you know dream uh, dictionaries where you can look up, you know, something. So I think in some ways, you know, dreams has been something that's been devalued within our culture. And so I think that's, uh, and, and perhaps for some people, it's kind of developed this kind of flaky idea. And so I think that's one reason. I also think that, that the field is, is coming very late to the party um, around understanding the importance and value of dreams for brief people. We, you know, we know just in terms of sleep that that sleep is such an important feature for bereaved people. You know, insomnia is a very strong mark for people who have difficulties in bereavement, and some of that is about people's fear about their dreams or their distress, mm. or not being able to stay, or being woken by by dreams. So I think that's one reason why it's been you know, a slow area. I suppose the other parallel I would draw is 
some of the recent work that's been done on extraordinary experiences, that many bereaved people have um, experiences such as feeling the presence of the deceased, seeing the deceased, smelling the, feeling the touch of the deceased. This is something that bereaved people are very reluctant to talk about, and they're reluctant because of the fear of being seen as going crazy. But we know that you know, over 70% of bereaved people have what we might call extraordinary experiences. And people will make their own meaning. For some, it may be a, a spiritual belief. It may be an afterlife belief. Um, but I think it's something where, where we now uh, would actively invite bereaved people to talk about, you know, since, since the death of this person. Have you had any experiences that are kind of seem weird or crazy or, or extraordinary? And people will often really freely talk about those. And so I think there is this bit of, there's a fear with many bereaved people that if I talk about this, I'll be seen as being kind of nutso. Um, <laughs> right. But but I remember mentioning this once in a workshop and a guy came up to me during the break and said, you know, four months after his wife died, he was walking down a main street in, 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 in his town and he glanced over his right shoulder and his wife was walking beside him. And he said, mm-hmm. she was as real then as you are to me today. They had a conversation about their children and after a few minutes, she, she was no longer there. And this was not a crazy man. This was somebody who was having an extraordinary experience that was really rich in meaning and provided enormous comfort to him. And so I think, you know, like dreams, there is a kind of a bit of reluctance about um, talking about these events that they're often difficult to explain or difficult to convey. And, uh, and so I think that's a really... It's an important thing that we, we now really should be actively asking people you know, about their dreams because they are so rich in meaning for people. They provide such, often either sources of comfort or sources of distress um, in the same way we might ask them if they've had any other extraordinary experiences. Yeah, I think it's beautiful because you're right. Like So many people keep it hidden for fear of judgment. Mm-hmm. and. And what I've yeah. sort of come to know is just by asking the question, like I'll ask people in the grocery stores if I see like they have a memorial tattoo on or, or, or over yeah, here yeah. something to do with their a loss, I'll just ask and how grateful they are just to be able to share the dream that they had. And I think That's the same cool. thing with external experiences. If you just ask the question, they feel it's more safe um, yeah. to be able to share that. And so I think that's beautiful because really, yeah. Well, you said 70%, right? In one, one study, that's, that's huge. Yeah, yeah, 70%. So there are a lot of people having these experiences and, you know, and not sharing them or talking about them. Um, but, you know, as I, my view is that what most people want to do is make sense of their experience. They want to find some meaning in this experience. And, and those sorts of things can be really, really very powerful. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Wow, that's, that's great. Well, thank you for sharing that stuff. And, uh, so those listeners, if you had those experiences, you're not alone. You're just not alone. Um, so the last question we like to ask on the podcast is probably what you're thinking about uh, in bed <laughs> last <laughs> week. What dream would you want to have of someone who has died um, tonight, if you could? Yeah, I was, I was thinking about this because I, yeah, I know, knew this question was coming from, from hearing other episodes. And I think what I came down with is a dream where I see my father smile. Um, so probably a dream, I'm thinking one time we're in the car together. And I, I think probably just a dream where I've been in the, uh, in the car and just look over and see his smile. And 
Nice. Yeah. And where are you? Since you're so, and you're so big with ritual and environment. Where are you going? Uh, going home. Um, <laughs> going uh, um, after my father retired, we he ended up living in a, a kind of small village. It was a historical. Um, very important historical town, and uh, so I think it would be a case of being on the road, travelling to this little town called Malden, which is in central Victoria, and uh, yeah, so that that certainly would be where we're going. That's nice. And did you have like a favourite music track you like to listen to, or a radio show? Or yeah, well, I mean, he was he was very much into kind of um, classical music, and again, that's something I picked up. I'd adult student at the flute um, and uh, so he'd often listen to it was interesting with his dementia that one of the, the last things I guess that was to go was his, 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 his um, sense of music so if he became distressed my mother had actually a, a series of recordings of hymn music you know, religious music that she put on and he'd actually become very you know very calm um, once, once that music was being being played, of course, music he grew up with. Uh, so um, perhaps it'd be a piece of, of classical music uh, uh, on the radio as we're Love in the car on a sunny day. That's cool. And the last one, last question I have, I'm trying to picture in my mind, what age do you want him to be? Because you said he died around 82. Did you want him to be yeah. younger? Young, do you want him to be younger than you? Do you want him to be the same age as you? Like, what, what age would you want him to be? Yeah, I think probably... You know, probably 60s, hmm. you know, maybe mid-60s. So, you know, older than I am at the moment. <laughs> because I think, you know, if, if, if I hadn't really thought about him as, as being younger than me, that feels a little weird. I have to, I have to process that a bit more. Um, <laughs> and there's a child driving the that's car. That's me some homework. Um, yeah. Um, but one of the great things that my father was he wrote a, a autobiography um, and I helped him kind of get that published. It was called uh, The Valley of Decision. And uh, and so that's been great to get a sense of his life and that helped me make sense of, of who he became as well. So, you know, um, what I'm doing with my mother at the moment, she's, uh, she'll be 90 in July. He's off gone up and I'm doing a, a, I'm videotaping interviews. We've done about three hours so far. We're up to... Uh, when she found out about the outbreak of the, of the Second World War. But really just trying to get down on tape all those stories, um, all the anecdotes. Um, so to have that kind of biography is, is, is really important, I think. It's beautiful because you can look back at that and because we forget details as we move forward. So it's something you can always look yeah. back and to remember. And especially if you get them on film, you hear their voice again and you exactly. see them, you know, like just smile and have their, you know, weird quirks. That is just, it yeah, makes so, them who they are. Absolutely. You can need to look at photographs and, and talk about who's there because, you know, once she dies, there'll be, you know, uh, there'll be a whole history that will die with her. And uh, and so it, it, it's going to be nice to, uh, to actually have that recorded, um, you know, for posterity. Wow. Well, I uh, I had such a pleasure talking to you today. And hearing about just your journey and your, your grief and also the, the dreams, uh, that the two dreams you have had. And hopefully you have some more moving forward, especially the one where he's smiling at you. 
uh, in a yeah, car. Yeah, <laughs> that'd be amazing. You have to let me know if uh, if yeah. coming on the podcast triggers dreams too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a post blog to that for you. Uh, <laughs> the impact of a uh, podcast blog on, uh, on eliciting dreams. No, I've had a blast. It's been great. Uh, uh, it's been great to to catch up and uh, and have a really good uh, good chat. I've enjoyed it, Josh. Yeah, it's been it's been fun. Um, and so, is there a place where people can find either you or your organization? Sure. Um, our website is www.grief.org.au, um, and so that's the uh, that's the website. I'm on Twitter at C W H A L L C W Hall. So, um, um, and my my email address is C h-a-l-l-c.hall at Beautiful. That's amazing. Well, hopefully the, if people have questions, uh, they can find you on uh, Twitter um, or just uh, message you uh, through the organization. And so you have also, for those guests, uh, also remember that there is a grief conference down there. So if you live in the area or if you want to fly down there uh, to check it out, there's not many grief conferences that I know about. So I think it's one of one five or something that's annual or semi-annual. So, you know, check it out. You can learn a lot uh, through some experts in the field. Well, plan to come in 2020. <laughs> or t- yeah, 2020, start saving. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So for uh, our stuff, you can please check out our uh, platform at griefdreams.ca for more information. And we published a newsletter probably a month ago. If you want to check that out in there is updates on the research I'm doing at Brock and also you get one of these profound dreams that uh, someone has shared in in a great sort of length to sort of really understand the impact of these dreams. And there's a bunch of other stuff in the newsletter. So you can sign up for that. Uh, also, if you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group and you can check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. And you can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, and many other podcasting platforms. And if you subscribe, on whatever platform you'll always get the updates you don't need to sort of find us we'll find you and so uh, once again thank you so much for listening Uh, and as we like to say at the end of the podcast with love and gratitude from us to you